So all my friends in Chicago told me that I have to get this guy on my show. So I reached out to him uh, just about a week ago, and uh, he generously offered to come on because we need to talk about all things Chicago on this show. Lieutenant John Garrido, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Appreciate it. So I want to start off, you know, you're a fellow Illinoisan and uh, uh, recently retired from the Chicago Police Department. You're a second generation Chicago cop. Talk about that. I am. I am. My father was on the Chicago Police Department for 30, almost 38 years. Uh, I actually even had an uncle that was on the job for about uh, 29 years. Uh, and then I have another uncle who was actually a Cicero police officer for about 15 years. So it's definitely uh, in the family. That's fantastic. So, I mean, you had a, you know, 32 years is a long time to, uh, to work in Chicago. What were some of the uh, highlight assignments of your career? Boy, uh, 30, like you're right, 32 years is a long time, but it, it went by in an instant. I remember in the academy, they said, you know, you're, you'll be surprised how fast it goes by. And, you know, when you're 23 years old, 22 years old, you're, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, it's not going to go that quick. And it was just... It, it went by like a flash. Uh, I started off in patrol like everybody does. And then I was able to move over after about five years to narcotics. And I worked as an undercover narcotics officer. Uh, then I was promoted to detective and I worked as a violent crimes detective. Then I was promoted to sergeant. Uh, I was fortunate. I did, I did well on exams. Uh, so I, I, from sergeant, I was shipped to the south side, worked there for a little while, and then became a violent crime sergeant. I uh, did that for almost 10 years, and then I was promoted to lieutenant. Uh, from lieutenant, I, I worked as a uh, back at patrol. I worked as a CAPS lieutenant, community policing lieutenant, and I also worked as a TAC lieutenant, and then a watch operations lieutenant and a field lieutenant. Uh, so I've had quite the variety for sure. I've been able to work in units and patrol. Now, your uh, reputation is one uh, of, a, of a good leader, a compassionate leader who takes care of his people. How did you earn that reputation? I, I didn't have to make a conscious effort of it. I, I think I just worked uh, hard to build camaraderie. <laughs> and uh, I think that if, if any leader, uh, especially in law enforcement, if you can build camaraderie with your team, uh, I think you can accomplish anything then. Uh, these officers will, will go through walls for you. They'll uh, they'll, they'll back you up. They'll work with you. Uh, it's just a matter of that, that team building and making everybody, everybody, you know, remember that they're important that, that every single officer that's working for me, regardless of their, their level of, of drive or experience, uh, they're once they're on our team, they're, they're us, they're with us, they're family. And if you treat them that way, I think that, uh, you know, leaders will find that, they respond and uh, they'll, they'll, uh, they'll work with you. It's, it's more they're working with you instead of for you. So I think that's uh, a key element of it. And, and there's no doubt sometimes, you know, you, you have to, uh, you know, you have to be tough and you have to uh, use discipline. But if you've built up the environment, like I'm describing, an officer will actually feel bad when they step out of line. They'll they, they, because they don't feel like they're necessarily just letting you down, they're letting the team down. So, you know, during the pandemic, um, you know, at the beginning, you know, the, the, the Chicago police department, like every police department 
um, went through a lot of difficulties and changes. And then we had the death of George Floyd in 2020. And, uh, and then there were some infamous things that also happened uh, with the Chicago Police Department. Um, talk about the difficulties in the last couple of years that the Chicago Police Department has been going through dealing with rising crime, a mayor that doesn't support you, uh, and uh, and all the other things that your people deal with, because it's always in the news. Yeah, boy. So it's, you know, obviously over time, every department changes. There's always a, a transition just, you know, from uh, generation to generation. When I came on back in the early 90s and 91, uh, I remember officers then, kid, the job's not what it used to be, uh, you know, and, and, you know, they're always complaining about how things had changed so much from when they came on 30 years earlier. But boy, in the last 32 years, what a dramatic change. Uh, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but one of the big reasons, uh, the, the biggest changes were over the last few years, the last three years, at least for Chicago, and I think nationwide. Uh, but the the civil unrest that went on throughout the city and the way that it was handled or not handled here, I think really had a significant impact on our officers. We had such a, uh, an, an experienced upper echelon that when the civil unrest took off and, and everything went crazy like that, they were spitballing ideas. They, there's whiplash policies from week to week, different ideas were coming out. Uh, going back and forth, officers were working 12 hour days, uh, days off canceled constantly. Uh, nobody could, it, it seemed like there was no leadership at the top at all. And in part because our superintendent just, he, he doesn't know Chicago, he's from Texas, uh, but also because the people that they promoted, when you, when you take somebody uh, that's a sergeant and you promote them to lieutenant, and then two months later, they're a commander, and then six months later, they're a chief they don't get the opportunity to grow in those positions. They don't get a chance to learn how to lead in those positions and those roles. And then from there, uh, it just went on to the, the policies were created without the officer's well-being in mind. You, you can't constantly just uh, you know, cancel days off and, and make officers work 12-hour days uh, with, without giving them some type of idea of, of why there, there was not even any reasoning. Sometimes they, they were just canceled days off a weekend would come up and they would just cancel the weekend off and they wouldn't put anything out as to what was the reason why were we canceling days off. A lot of times you knew it was going to be Memorial Day weekend or Fourth of July weekend. Uh, but but it was this administration was crazy with that. I mean, it was it was constant and it took its toll on these officers there and it's still taking its toll. They're they're exhausted. We still have officers that are working their days off. Uh, they're even volunteering to work their days off because we're so short on manpower uh, and that we can transition over into allocation, officer allocation. This superintendent refuses to either acknowledge or accept or understand that we have to have units, of course, that support patrol, but patrol division is the backbone of the Chicago Police Department or any department. That's your, your front line. Those are the officers that are in uniform. Those are the officers that are in the squad cars. They're doing the, the traffic stops. They're responding to the 911 calls. And you need to have a, a very healthy patrol division. Well, those support units, you have to thin them down when you're losing manpower in patrol. Uh, you know, we'd love to have 
uh, you know, 300 officers assigned to the academy or, or 400 officers assigned to the narcotics section or, or the mayor herself has, she's ballooned her protection detail from 26 officers to the previous mayor to 110 officers she has working in her unit. And you have to reduce those units and you have to beef up patrol. When we've got officers that are, they're all now working one man cars, they're working their days off to just so we can fill the beat cars. We've got the 16th district is on the Northwest side of Chicago, covers 30 square miles. And sometimes we have only 15 officers covering the entire district. And of those 15 officers, five or six of them are working their days off. So you can imagine if they decided not to work their days off, what we would end up with. We just have no manpower patrol, yet we still have these units that are bursting at the seams. Lieutenant, do you think that, or maybe this has already happened, are the standards being lowered to bring in new Chicago police officers? Yeah, so 100%. We, when I took the, the police test back in the, uh, the late 80s, about 35,000 people took the test with me. They, they would get all of the high schools around the city and just load them up. And every time they gave a test, you would get anywhere from 25 to 35,000 test takers. Now, we're lucky if we get 1,500. I mean, it's, it's dropped off so much. The, and, and that can be attributed to just everything. They've uh, finally successfully made the job undesirable where people are like, why would I wanna go do that? And that is causing us to have a very, very small pull to pr uh, pull from. The mayor actually suggested that she was going to even drop the uh, physical fitness standard. Uh, similar to the military, she said that uh, where they would get in shape once they're in the academy. Now, I have news for the mayor, but uh, first of all, the academy is no boot camp. It's, it's rough, there's no doubt, but it is not a military boot camp. And with the military boot camp, you have people that, that are soldiers, they, they don't leave the camp. They don't get to go home. They're actually, their diet is controlled to what they eat. Uh, there is nobody that's going to go into the academy extremely out of shape and just get into shape. Uh, they've removed just about everything because of uh, lawsuits and things. We used to have a a wall that, you know, part of an obstacle course, and there was a wall that you had to get over, and everybody was all stressed out about getting over the wall. Uh, well, they've since removed the wall because it was too difficult. So uh, that's just the physical fitness standards. Uh, testing, uh, they've, they've reduced whether you need college or not. And, and don't get me wrong, uh, when I came on the police department, I didn't have college. I had uh, just a high school diploma. I went back and got my college education part-time. So that doesn't mean just because you have college that you're a better candidate. There are probably lots of people out there that are good. Uh, I know there are, but you still have to have some standards in place. You still have to have something to, to uh, weed out those that just aren't qualified and that just shouldn't carry a gun. And that's, I think, not happening now. I mean, I'm sure we still have a lot of great people that are, are coming on the job, uh, but when you have nobody applying, you have nobody coming in, uh, you could actually on test day, just walk up and walk in and take the test. There's not even a, a process in place. Uh, they're, they're trying like crazy to recruit and it's just not working. That's so extraordinary because, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, the suburban agencies, mine included, would lose people to Chicago PD. Now we're just stealing from your ranks like every other uh, suburb out yes. there. Um, yeah. 
Some of the policies uh, have changed over the last couple of years. Can you explain to people briefly the foot pursuit policy and the vehicle pursuit policy and how they have become more restrictive? So <clears throat> these policies, so for example, the, the vehicle pursuit policy, that's a policy that developed slowly over time, over years. Uh, and, and usually the, uh, you know, probably any big city, uh, our policies change as bad things happen. So when, when you know, there's a, uh, a vehicle chase that ends up uh, in some type of a tragedy, uh, then they'll take a look at that and then they'll, they'll restrict it and it'll get, you know, tighter and tighter. Uh, but the one key thing about the, the in particular, that, that uh, policy, the vehicle chase policy, it wasn't broadcast on the 10 o'clock news what our policy was. I mean, it was out there for people to find, but they didn't do it. Well, with this mayor and the superintendent always looking for some type of soundbite to you know, cater to their political base, uh, when they came up with this crazy idea for a foot pursuit policy, they took to the airwaves and put it out there, not only that we had a policy, what it was, and essentially put out there that, that the police can't chase. Now, under circumstances, we can, but... It, it, there's it's a it's almost like the balancing test that they use for the uh, the um, vehicle pursuit policy. So you we have now now we have officers that on video because you'll have the uh, the residents in the neighborhood will come up with their cameras every time the officers pull up and if somebody takes off and the officers go after them you hear the residents yelling at the officers you can't chase you can't chase. So they basically threw out there. Uh, you know, and, and created this environment uh, that still one more notch in the belt of making it difficult for officers to do their job. Uh, the, the foot pursuit policy is ridiculous. I mean, the idea that, that the officers, look, if somebody runs, you go after them. No, I, I mean, they, she tries to say, well, a, a traffic stop shouldn't end with somebody getting shot or a, uh, you know, just a street stop shouldn't end with somebody getting shot. Well, no doubt. And if the person being stopped doesn't have a gun and doesn't point it at the police, they won't get shot. So they never, it's, it's, it's so, it, to me, and I don't know why, it just seems it's so simple. It's a simple thing. Comply with the officer's orders and you'll be fine. And if you yeah. don't like we what have the a, telling you, complain about it then. We have a public service announcement we play frequently. It's called comply now, complain later. That's exactly it. That is perfect. <laughs> I, yeah, I'd like to see that. Send it to me because I'll, I'll put it here. <laughs> I will do that. I, I mean, it's, it's so simple. Comply now, complain later. It makes sense. Absolutely. So we heard a dog bark in the background uh, there. So for the next couple of minutes, um, you're, a, I want to talk about you're a fellow dog lover like me. Yes. And one of the things that you've done is taken that love of dogs and your experience with strays and you've turned it into a, a foundation that, that helps homeless dogs. Talk about that. Yes. So my wife and I, uh, we're, we're big dog lovers, uh, animal lovers in general, uh, but dogs in particular, whenever we would go on vacation, we would try to help the, the homeless dogs. If we were somewhere and you see the dogs that are on the street, uh, we would uh, get them some food. Uh, and if they needed medical attention, we would even take them to the nearest vet and try to get a medical attention. 
that was always just something that would happen on our trips. Well, one trip in particular, it was uh, San Pedro, Belize, and we were walking down the beach and this Doberman started following my wife, Anna. So I started uh, videoing and taking pictures. Uh, then the dog followed us into town. So we stopped and got the dog some food. And we noticed that the dog, that somebody tried to neuter the dog in an archaic way by using string and you know the back end of the dog there. So we decided to take the dog to the vet. Well, the vet was closed. So that's when we brought the, the dog to our hotel room and he stayed overnight. Uh, by the next morning, she was calling the dog Pedro, and that's when I knew that I was in trouble for sure. Uh, so we were going to take the dog to the vet, and somebody suggested we go to the Humane Society there. Well, they took the dog back from us when we got there and said that the dog actually escaped from them, and they were the ones actually doing that procedure on the dog. So it was, it was heartbreaking at the time. We left. We came back about an hour later and decided to make a donation so we could take the dog out of there and take it to a vet. While we were gone, they castrated the dog and he was actually in a cage crying and, and essentially dying at this point. We were able to get the dog out of there, get him to a vet, and uh, they worked hard to save him. Well, all of this I had been updating and putting on Facebook. So a friend of ours up here, uh, decided to do a fundraiser for us, and we raised $2,600 for the dog's care overnight. Well, fast forward, uh, the rest of our trip was spent stopping there to check on the dog. Uh, we decided we wanted to figure out how to get him home. And it's not easy to just bring a Doberman home from Belize. So we ended up coming up with this elaborate plan. Uh, my father and I uh, flew to Cancun and we met with uh, some people that we met online, Hector and his father, Jose Luis. Uh, we rented a car in Cancun, and then the four of us drove south to the southern border to meet some people that we met in Belize that took a two-hour boat ride and drove Pedro to the border there and crossed into Mexico. Uh, my wife, Anna, then mapped out a route all the way through Mexico where we, we worked our way back to the border she drove down, she crossed and met us at the Texas and Mexico border, and then we drove them home. So all of that was captured on social media and we started to build up this following. So when I got home, what I would uh, I did one time, a dog came into the station and I took a picture of it and put it on Facebook and we found the owner almost immediately. So I started doing that every single time an animal would come in, I would take a picture of it, put it on Facebook, and we would find their owners. If the, if the dog needed grooming, we went to a local groomer uh, and they helped us out. Uh, they, they're called the dog house. They helped us out and they would donate the grooming. Uh, we had a doctor, Dr. Sackis from Niles Animal Hospital. Uh, he would help us out with uh, letting us run a tab at the Niles Animal Hospital to take care of the dog's medical care if they needed it. And all this just grew organically to a point where that was started in 2014. 2017, we became an official rescue, the Garrido Stray Rescue Foundation. And now we help approximately 250 to 300 stray dogs a year that come in. We're able to, we have a, a relationship now with animal control. We're a stray hold approved rescue. And we are at about an 89% return to owner rate which compared to animal control, by no fault of their own, because they're inundated with animals, they're at about 23 to 25% return to owner rate. So we, we get most of these animals home to their families and those that we can't, then we, we put up for adoption. And we've even expanded into a court advocacy portion of our rescue 
because some of the dogs that were coming in were abused. And now, well, pre-pandemic, we were getting about 110 to 120 people would show up to these court dates mm-hmm. and just, you know, they would silently rise in the courtroom when they would call the case. And it just put everybody on notice. We're watching. Somebody's paying attention. We want justice for, for the, the animal abuse. And it's, it's been extremely successful. Now, since the pandemic had dropped off, it's mostly Zoom. Uh, but even the in-person now that we're just starting to do again, we're getting about 40 people showing up to court and another 20 or so that are online. So it's uh, it's extremely rewarding. We're, you know, of course, there's there's the sad moments, you know, some dogs we lose and some, you know, uh, horrible situations. But overall, for the most part, uh, you know, I would say in law enforcement, we we're always dealing with the, the for the most part, the bad side of society. Right. We're, we we get bombarded with the negatives. But with this, I have seen such a bright side of humanity. So many people that step up for every every bad person who's abusing these animals. There's a hundred plus that are willing to step up and help. And it's it's been really, really rewarding seeing the good side. That's, man, that is awesome. We have a less than a minute left. Where can people find more about you, about the rescue, um, and uh, any of your social media pages? Uh, so greedostrayrescue.org is the website, uh, but we're mostly super active on Facebook. So if you go to Gerito Stray Rescue Foundation on Facebook, uh, and it's all intertwined and everything's all mixed together on Twitter, uh, Instagram, it's all just Gerito Stray Rescue or John Gerito. John, I cannot thank you enough for spending time with me today. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.